0: When someone says their bourbon is made with 100% corn, you can't really believe them, can you? You can if it's our guest today. Scott Blackwell of Highwire Distilling Company wanted to create a spirit that was different. But how do you even start? I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry winner of the Best of the South Award from Garden & Gun magazine this year, was just one of the many awards that Highwire Distilling Company has won since its decision to make bourbon with Jimmy Red, a corn that moonshiners used in the past and came very close to extinction. But it's really Scott's tale to tell, so I'll let him tell it.
1: Um, so I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, up in the upstate. Uh, my wife, Ann, who is uh, the other half of this business is uh from orangeburg south carolina so we're both native south carolinians
0: and um so you have this award-winning distillery um talk me through the path of how you even decided to start making bourbon and all the other things you make
1: um well first off um we did not know anything about distilling when we started this literally um bought all the equipment, renovated this space and got in the building and then turned on the still and distilled our first stuff. So it was six months of construction and all this and then you know had like like literally had never distilled a thing. Uh, so um, you know it was kind of a scary uh, thing but it, historically I've been kind of done that a few times. I was in the coffee business years ago bought a roaster, didn't know anything about roasting coffee, how hard can it be, and uh, I'm also an obsessive uh, person, so I read a lot, um, watch, uh, you know, videos, tour around, check out what people are doing, you know, just sort of like, you know, how you do it. It's easier these days with social media, but back in the day it was, it was trickier. Um, things like roasting coffee in the early 90s. It, you know the internet wasn't really a thing so this has actually been you know, there's almost too much information out there um, we were brewing beer we had a, a bakery uh, packaged food company selling organic uh, place and bake cookie dough biscuits things like that um, and on you know just for a hobby we were brewing beer and then we were thinking about well you know we knew that we were going to probably sell the bakery we were getting a lot of interest from large companies and uh, we had investors and you know it was just sort of inevitable that we were going to end up getting out of that business and i thought you know maybe we ought to start a brewery and kind of went on for a couple of years and i was bringing hauling equipment in the door and putting it in our basement and refrigerators and Ann's like, uh, what is all this? I would leave on a Saturday and go to the homebrew store and come back with, you know, a thousand more dollars worth of equipment. And she was like, you're kind of, how much did you spend? You know, you're freaking me out. And I'm like, well, if we're going to get serious about this, we've got, you know, like there again, this is that obsessive nature. We have the
0: perfect refrigerator, yeah.
1: Right. And so um, she finally fessed up to me after I took her in a bunch of beer stores and there were walls of beer she's like "Um, I I don't really know that I want to do beer Mm -hmm. that sort of scares me there's a lot of breweries and they all kind of have a story like ours so how do we how do we feel like it's late Mm -hmm. So, it was a bit of a crushing blow, but uh, we went to hang out with a friend of ours that owns a beer distributorship, and first thing out of his mouth, he says, hey, I'd love, you know, you guys will make great beer, I know you will, and I'll buy it and distribute it for you, but have you ever thought about spirits? And I was like, it's funny you say that, because Ann said that yesterday, Mm -hmm. uh, actually, and I'm like... I don't know anything about spirits. How do you make it? What's the deal? It just comes out of the still and it's clear. And how much really flavor can you taste from one spirit to another? I mean, how much translates through? Um, so obviously, you were not a big spirit drinker before that. No, you know, and growing up in South Carolina, we bars here only had mini bottles.
0: Oh, interesting. So
1: guess what? It was very limited and very more of like what i would call industrial you know um so kentucky
0: and tennessee what they were doing there didn't really bleed over into here
1: not really i mean you know sure the big guys you know jim beam Mm -hmm. and things of that nature but um it wasn't you know there wasn't a depth and also i believe that in this country i always like to say that we're just now starting to recover from prohibition um because first was wine and when i was younger uh like in the, I would say in the late 70s, early 80s, um, you'd go to a restaurant and you'd get a carafe of wine, you know, you, you know they had jugs they were dumping in, the, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And then the, the, the good stuff was imported. We didn't have, we didn't think we made good wine here. And, you know, that was sort of early, in, you know, the Judgment of Paris was happening and sort of... Wine was starting to grumble a little bit out there in the West Coast in California. Um, fast forward to now, you know, wine was the, the, the first mover. Then behind that was beer. Uh, it was, you know, the big guys there again, mm-hmm. even really in the late, late 80s. Um, and when I owned my restaurant, I decided I was only going to carry craft beer in 1989. That was early. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my choices were Anchor Steam, um, uh, Saint, uh, I was going say Sam Adams. Adams was that considered still? Pete, Pete, yeah. Yeah. yeah like that day it yeah. was like the yeah. b- most amazing you know thing in the world and then you had uh, Pete's Wicked Ale right. uh, oh my gosh you know, so I remember was, all that stuff too yeah so I thought that's a really cool business and I had gone to Vermont and there was a brewery up there called Catamount and I just really sort of got obsessed with sort of that like it's not wine but they're making things mm-hmm. and I think that's really cool mm-hmm. Uh, then you know cider kind of have, has had a moment uh, and continues. Then it, the beer started to evolve into sours and gozes and you know just like wine, it got even more and more, uh, you know, kind of splintered. Um, so spirits are kind of the last bastion, um, and um, you know it felt it's just like anything like that. You know, when you're an early mover, and we're not that old, six years. But at that point, there were only about 150 distilleries in the U.S. Now I think there's like 1,700. Mm-hmm. Um, but there weren't a lot of guys like us that I could go and say, yeah, there, that's you can make a living doing that. So that's what really spooked me. It wasn't, you know, can we make alcohol? It was can we make a business and, like, make a living off mm-hmm. of this? Uh, I, I love the idea of it, you know, any making anything. So, But spirits uh,
0: is a big category.
1: Yeah. How did
0: you decide on... what you wanted to do first.
1: Well, I looked at the wine business and thought, you know, there are a lot of guys out there that are doing, you know, 10 to 20,000 case businesses that have been doing it. And that's all they do. And that's all they're ever probably going to do. And their, their life is, seems pretty good. You know, they're, yeah, they have to work and all that, but they've got a brand. They've got, they're not trying to conquer the world. Um, so I thought, you know, this is really more of what, what I would call the word craft is so overused. Um, as part of that thought process, I thought, well, what is craft in distilling? Because the big guys, you know, in Kentucky and Indiana and all that, uh, you know, there really aren't that, weren't that many. There are like eight of them. But um, they, uh, they make a good product. So what are we bringing to the forefront yeah they make bourbon okay so we make quinoa or millet whiskey well there's not much of a market for Mm -hmm. that so one thing that we learned early on um, with the bakery was we always got obsessed with these really cool flavors we would make like we made a pumpkin ginger cookie or a lemon white chocolate but at the end of the day chocolate chip sold the best and There's a reason for that, Mm -hmm. you know, even, you know, so we thought we really need to be making things that people understand like rye and bourbon and maybe a single malt, uh, gin, things of that nature. Uh, Yes, they're big categories. There's a lot of competition. But if we could introduce something that's worth doing and bring a flavor that they aren't making uh, within within that category... Mm -hmm. Um, and with craft beer, a lot more drinkers are used to experimenting around. They're not stuck with their only drink, mm-hmm. Evan Williams, period, which you know has been historically the way that, especially in that bourbon world, uh, has worked. But now, brown spirit drinkers, usually you go to their house, and they'll have 20, 30 brown spirits mm-hmm. on their bar, and they love tasting different things. So... This was all conceptual at this point. Uh, again, didn't really understand about the what went in, came out type thing. And our first sort of stab at it was uh, we used an heirloom white corn, an open pollinated corn. So we thought, oh, it's heirloom. That's cool. Let's do that. It really didn't have a dynamic flavor. Um, and you So know, you it, put
0: it through the still and as it came out, it was, it was like... Uh, it
1: was corn. Uh-huh. You know, it it, it it was cool to make it. But it was definitely like, is this enough? And, you know, just because it's local, yeah, that means something locally. But in New York, people don't care that you're using local. They're like, that's quaint and that's nice. But, um, and you're making it in small batches. Well, who cares if it doesn't taste that different? You know, all that stuff just starts, that sizzle. So, um, in sort of in parallel, there again, obsession, you know, uh, obsessive personality, Panic, angst, all that sort of going on, and and this is the fall of thirteen when we were opening, and um, I'm reading and looking at publica- you know, trade publications, going to stores, scouring the shelves. I mean, sort of panicked. Like I say, um, I a, a friend of ours, uh, John T. Edge, who runs the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I were walking across the parade. Uh, deck over here at Marion Square, and he said, uh, Oh, distilling, huh? Have you ever thought about it? working with sorghum? And I'm like, Well, I worked with it with the bakery with gluten free. I should try it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm curious. So I was like, Well, I wonder what that would taste like. So we got some sorghum, uh, mashed it, to it, fermented it, distilled it. The fermentation was crazy. It smelled like bananas, and the distillation was amazing. And I'm like, Oh, that tastes a lot different than the corn. And it was sort of like light bulb moment of like, okay, well, just like tomatoes and mushrooms and things like that, I wonder what other corns would taste like. Let's take a deeper dive. Just because it's heirloom, what does that mean? Who cares? You know, um, so we, this all happened in about a six-week period. Mm-hmm. Um, we called, uh, Glenn Roberts from Anson Mills who, uh, has really restored um, Charleston Gold Rice. He works with a ton of uh, different varieties of corns. He's working with uh, you know chefs like Dan Barber, uh, him, Chad Robertson. You know, I mean, chefs all over the country, all over the world. This guy knows a lot about ancestral grains.
0: Had you worked with him before in the bakery?
1: No, knew him. No, we were really kind of using you know um, unbleached flour, Uh you know, it wasn't, we were making cookies, you know, it wasn't, we weren't making breads, so, um, it wasn't as, as critical, we were using good quality stuff, we actually used Lindley Mills out of North Carolina, great miller, Glenn knows them well, works with them, so we sort of had this, like, uh, parallel life, and, and Ann was on the slow food board in Greenville, and he had come and done some talks, and. Um, you know was around I knew who he was um, you know but it wasn't really he was more Mm -hmm. chef-y but I said we've got to get in touch with this guy and he happens to be from South Carolina or live in South Carolina he's from California originally but he has a place in Columbia South Carolina two hours away and I said Glenn we know we need to learn about corn we need to understand more about corn because corn is the primary ingredient in bourbon as you know so that's the place where you start. We can talk about the wheat and rye later, but let's focus on this corn, seventy percent of the grain bill. Go down to Clemson at the research center and meet with him. And he's got a six foot table full of, uh, I don't know, fifty corns, you know. Uh, and he's going through, and he's kind of um, uh, manic when he starts going. You know, he's and he's going through, and he's telling me this one right here, and he's using scientific terms and passion,
0: right?
1: And um, he's skipping around and he keeps skipping over this one. And I said, Hey, yeah, well, you didn't mention this one right here in the middle of the table. What's that one? And he goes, Oh, yeah, that's Jimmy Red, James Allen Red. That's the one you want. It's an old hooch corn. That's the corn, that's the one I think you ought to grow. And I'm like, well, It took yeah, wait, us wait, like wait. <laughs> a, a half hour to get here. Uh, but I learned a lot about a lot of other uh, corns. So I said, Great, we would love to make some of that and and glenn glenn is uh i think glenn gets hit up a lot with a lot of people asking you know for favors and things so there was a little bit of like trust building that had to happen and he said you know you guys distillers and brewers are grain hogs you use a lot of grain uh, you know and our grain's special and you know you need to you know be respectful of this you so he sort of gave me a little bit of a uh, a lesson at that point, and uh, and he said, but also, uh, how much do you need? I said, well, about a thousand pounds. He goes, well, then you're going to have to grow it. I'll give you the seed for free, but you'll have to grow it. You need to write a check to Clemson for research uh, and have mm-hmm. them help you, and we'll work. I'll work alongside, and we'll grow it organically. And we so get...
0: you had to wait another year, yeah, for it to m- grow. Yeah, Literally. yeah, we had to
1: wait yeah, how about long did it five, take? Months. Yeah. five months. Yeah, yeah, but From... that's painful. I mean this was especially the, when
0: you don't even know if it's gonna taste good,
1: right, and we wrote a big check and uh and so we I was in the field uh it went in the field in April of fourteen, and I was in the field, running behind the tractor when the seeds went in the ground, and then I went back the next week when it was starting to germ, and then I was back. Uh, we went every week and followed it all the way through. And I kept saying, okay, when do we get to harvest? <laughs> and Glenn's like, it's not dry enough. We need to get it down to 13% moisture. And it had dropped down, but we were getting tons of rain. We're in a humid environment. And you would test it in the morning, it'd be 17%. You would test it in the afternoon, it'd be 23 you know, or you know, vice versa. And it's like, oh, we're never going to get to 13%. Then it, it just started raining and... For days, and we couldn't. We figured out that we couldn't get a combine in because it was so muddy, and it was only two and a half acres. But we called, he said, You're gonna have to get some volunteers, and we're gonna have to hand break this stuff. So we went in and uh, we made a fun party out of it. And a friend of ours, a chef, cooked a bunch of grits with Jimmy Red and sausage and stuff, and cooked a big breakfast out in the field. And we fed everybody. And we uh, got the corn out of the field in probably about an hour and a half or so by hand. Uh, but at that point, the drama goes on. Uh, we didn't have a uh, we didn't have a way to clean or uh, shell the cobs, and we also didn't have a way to mill it. We didn't own a mill at that point. Uh, so um, Glenn's like, "All right, I'm going to take this stuff back to Columbia. We're going to hand sort it, clean it." Shell it, and then I will mill it for you. But the deal is, I mill it as you use it. We, you know, we can't nothing. It can't, can't get. Can't sit it. around. So he would mill it, and they would bring it down, and then the next day they would mill some more and bring it down. And it was it was uh, uh, a lot of you know, uh it, it, the I drama, feel
0: just sitting the here the drama was story.
1: perfect, you know, so it, it ended up being <laughs> And you're
0: like, please let it at least taste good.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, and so but you know, we're making the mash and it's this beautiful magenta color and then and we put it in the fermenter and the next day we walk in and there's this like three inch oil cap sitting on top which we had been using other heirloom corns. We just weren't seeing that and it also didn't smell like corn necessarily it had more of a fruit um my wife says banana laffy taffy artificial fruit i guess but it did have kind of a broody uh fermentation going on and uh we tasted some of the you know the uh, mash you know was you know it was getting lower in ph and sort of sour and there again, couldn't tell a whole lot from that, but I was definitely just anxious. So we, we do a long fermentation. Our fermentation for distillers. It's about a week, um, and we use an ale top-fermenting yeast. We use controlled fermenters, so they're white wine um, style uh, that we can clean really well because we also do sweet mash versus sour mash, so we don't use any back set. Uh, which is easier to get an infection in. So anyway, uh, all of this is going on, this fermentation, so it's closed up and I'm looking through the hole, watching it, you know, bubble and everything. We finally pump it over a week later into the still and it starts coming off and we're noticing there's a viscosity to it, this, uh, you know, heaviness, you know, to the spirit. But also, we're noticing there's some, like, um, marzipan, but also, like, some uh, spice flavor that we're sort of feel is really unusual. But also, it doesn't taste like corn, necessarily. It's not cobby or vegetal. Um, And I'm like, whoa, this is really, this this may actually be a, a legitimate good idea uh, so sort of starts to sink in and we put it in barrels uh, by this point we're starting to work with barrel entry proofs and you know we've got a lot of heat here it's uh, ambient we'll get up to 100 degrees back there and 90 plus percent humidity so we're we're going into uh, new charred American oak barrels but we're going in at 105 and 110 into the barrel legal limits 125 uh, reason is we don't want to over oak this stuff and um and you know they're going to fast forward about six months and we're tasting it out of the barrel and chef friends are coming by and trying this and going whoa how old is this this is unique this has got a really unique flavor and we're starting to get excited, but. We're not going to sell any. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, when are you going to release it? When are you going to release it? And um, a friend of ours was sitting here one day, a chef out of uh, Houston, Chris Shepard, and big bourbon fanatic. And he said, um, try, he has a friend with him. He goes, try some of this. And they try it. And he goes, how old do you think that is? And he goes, I don't know, four years or so. And he goes, no, 14 months. And he's like, and what's the proof? 117 it had gone up but it's super crazy it's like it's like 95 proof mm-hmm. and so he's like this is ready right now you should release it and i'm like we're not we're yeah, not legally re-
0: we can't well well we, we can't call it bourbon can, yeah yeah, yeah. So gotta we gotta be in there
1: yeah so we decided to wait a minimum of two years mm-hmm. so we could go to the straight bourbon um tag mm-hmm. and um you know, we, we put it on sale that, that, uh, that year it would have been in six, you know, it would have been in 16 and, uh, I left the morning of my wife was like, I don't know if we're going to really sell this or not. You know, I don't know that people are really excited about it. I said, well, I'm going, I've got to go to the fields. And she goes, what are you doing? What do you mean? And I said, well, we're pressing sugar cane today. We make an agricultural style rum. So she's like, I can't believe you're not going to be here for the release. I was like, well, we're pressing cane. I can't, I've got to go do that, you know. So she calls me, and the phone's kind of spotty down there. And she goes, we're out. I mean, and I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, we sold out in 11 minutes. Uh, she's like, we're, we're comp-. she goes, that we had one bottle left. Uh, and she, like, had to hide that and hold it back. But she was... Um, she was, of course, elated. Um, and, you know, then then during that period, we were also doing seed increases during those years. Mm-hmm. So we were bringing, you know, pulling some from the field to make more whiskey, but pulling some for additional seed and continuing to work with uh, Clemson. So it really sort of, at first I was tempted to put wheat or rye in because that, the, in the, in the, in the bourbon world, especially the flavoring grain is considered wheat or rye, not the corn. And I'm like, well, that seems backwards because corn's most of the grain bill. And they're like, yeah, well, most of the flavor comes from the barrel. And I'm like, well, that's, there's a lot of flavor in the spirit. So why would, you know, let's, Mm. so maybe the corn is just not that, you know, kind of remarkable. Um, so we, um, we were sharing a house down at uh, a, an event, and with uh, Julian and Sissy Van Winkle, and uh, of the Pappy family, you know. So we uh, Stitzel Weller back in the day, and Julian says, uh, "So, um, tell me about this red corn you're doing." And I tell him, and he says, "Well, send me a bottle of the White Dog, uh, the new make, mm-hmm. and um, I'd like to try it." so we got back I packed up a flask and sent it over and literally two days later my phone's like I come back upstairs my phone's laying there and it's two missed calls and a text message call me so from Julian so we don't chat regularly I haven't talked to him in a year probably now anyway he I call him he goes hey I just got your whiskey and uh gotta say uh my mind's kind of blown he's like uh what else is, what, what is in here? Wheat or rye. And I said, it's 100% corn. And he goes, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'm <laughs> sure we, we made it, you know. So he he said, okay, what kind of yeast are you using? Where did you come off the still? What, are you, what, what barrel proof are you going in? What kind of barrels are you going to use? He starts asking me all these questions. He's like, I got to tell you, this is, I, he goes, I swear there's wheat or rye in here. And I'm like, I promise you, there is no wheat or rye. And he, you know, we leave it at that after about 15 minutes of chatting. A few weeks later, he's in Charleston and comes by the distillery. He says, hey, uh, can we pull some stuff from some barrels? And I said, sure. So we pull a few samples, and he tries it. He goes, what's this, like four years old? And I said, no, it's about 12 months old. And he's like, this stuff just drinks older. And he goes, and it's just... This is just, he goes, you were on to something. He's like, I really am excited about this. He said, um, I got to tell you, I've been you know, drinking whiskey my whole life. And he says, your white dog is the best I have ever had, period. He was like, so you grow and make a lot of that stuff. He's like, you will, this is a good move. Um, he has gone on since to go and be doing whiskey events and people will call and email us and say, Julian Van Winkle said, what whiskey should we be drinking? And he just says yours, period. No one, no, none of the others, you know, and he's been, uh, so it's been great because um, it, it, it obviously uh, is, is very flattering and, uh, you know, we need some flattery while we're being patient, you know. Now you <laughs> uh,
0: briefly mentioned Rum. Agricultural rum,
1: yeah. So, we so while this was going on, just out of curiosity, I was saying, you know, okay, well, we put this sorghum in, it tastes different. We put this whatever in, and it tastes different. We grow a little bit of sugar cane here in South Carolina. Most of the guys around here make syrup with it. Well, I love rum, um, but rum, as you may know, uh, as a category is very polluted with lack of rules. Mm-hmm. So I, we can make a molasses-based rum, but molasses is so industrial and processed, I felt like let's get farther back to the agriculture and do something that I've had a little bit of, but I hadn't really had a lot of, which is rum agricole. Uh, we're, not in, we're not in Martinique and Guadeloupe. So we can't be part of the AOC, but we can follow their rules. And what we liked is there's no coloring, no sugar, nothing added to it. Have to use raw cane juice, fresh cane juice. You have to come off the still between 70 and 75 percent, and you know, you know, it's it's yeast and juice, period. So I talked one of the farmers in the midstate into uh, letting us. Pull a little bit of that juice and make a batch of rum, and uh, it was super sulfury uh, and funky, um, and I was really disappointed when we made it. Um, and I told Ann I said, I, "I we didn't have a lot of money, so I was this juice was expensive, and I thought I've just wasted a few grand." and you know she's going to be disappointed in me, and so I went to her and I said, "I think I've messed it up. I don't, you know, may, you know. I thought the juice tasted great, the fermentation was great, but this stuff coming off the still is really harsh." Mm-hmm. And that night I couldn't sleep, and I was reading articles on agricole. and in there there was one that uh, a place where it said you read they rest it for a minimum of three months in stainless before they release it, and I'm like why that is well now i know that sulfur blows off um so the sulfur slowly just dissipates so we just she said
0: so you just took it off the still put it in three
1: months later put it in the still put it in stainless then we Mm -hmm. put it in barrels and then we would just go back and try it occasionally And it was like just getting better and better as it sat and you think spirits don't change but they do especially especially from fruit and I, I believe with the cellulose and everything in uh, sugarcane, it is very much like a brandy. That's why the French treat it like cognac. Um, so, um, once we, that was in fall of 13. So, there again, we weren't sitting around, you know, not wondering what to do. We, I was kind of frantically trying to figure out, get my head around distilling and sort of. What's what going to work? Yeah, what goes in, what comes out, what's the flavor, what, you know, how much impact do we have? Um, during that time, there's a guy named Dr. David Shields, who is at the University of South Carolina, and he's a food historian, and he said he had heard about some of our experiments, and he called and he said, well, I've been wondering, there is an old ad that I found in Charleston from about 200 years ago for a thing called Watermelon Brandy they would make from watermelons. Would you be interested in making this? And I said, well, yeah, why not? You know, um, but I thought it's probably gonna taste a lot like rum because it's just sugar. Well, I was wrong. <laughs> uh, so we ended up um, getting some of the Bradford watermelons, which were uh thin skinned, uh, 40 pounders, uh, very squashy, you know, compared to the round like store-bought melons. Um, I learned a ton about melons. And I, there again, I was learning more about agriculture at this point because fast forward years later, we select melons now, and we'll taste four or five varieties and pick the one we're going to use. And if you taste them against a store-bought melon, they taste completely vegetal and squashy. They don't taste – you just eat it by itself. You're like, ooh, this is good watermelon. But you're, But when you taste them side by side, it's more – vegetal Mm -hmm. especially the old heirloom varieties so we had no idea how we were going to process this we got about 8,000 pounds of melons and we had knives and spoons and we scooped out the meat and pressed it by hand through these uh, screens that we had made into muck buckets and it took us about 13 hours it was miserable it was hot it was you know like July and 100 degrees, and everybody was sticky and tired, and by the end of the day, no one was talking to one another, uh, and Ann looked at me and said, uh, we're never doing this again, and I'm like, <laughs> I was like, okay, well, we, yeah, I hear you, it was, you know, I have a bit of a Tom Sawyer effect, so I'll, like, think up things, and then that, I was working, but I'm maybe not working, or I'm not in the trenches as much a lot of times, and then she'll look over at me when she is in the trenches and kind of give me the eye of like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, this is not working out so well. Um, it's so, a good
0: balance.
1: Yeah, so um, we made it, and people kept saying, "Is there a rind in here? Did you put the rinds in them?" Like, of course we didn't put the rind in there. But what we learned was, you know, there's white little tentacles that go down through the melon. That's just an extension of that white part of the rind. So. And all, you, all that um, cellular structure, like in raspberries or whatever, that's more vegetal matter mm-hmm. as opposed to fruit juice. So if you, eat, if you have a, a really good um, raspberry brandy or eau de vie, you can smell, it'll smell vegetal. Right. And that's that cellular uh, kind of encasement of that juice. And the same thing with watermelon. There's a lot of um, vegetal matter in there. Um, that kind of holds it all together. So, um, but, you know, it was funky. I mean, the first year we almost lost it. The fermentation was uh, sort of brutal. We had to, uh, we were pumping over, we were mashing down. I was treating it like wine, punching it down, and I didn't know what Mm -hmm. I was doing. Uh, But we messed with it too much, and we feel like we maybe got some bacterial Little bacterial infection going on in there, minor, so it had a little funky wine thing going on. Um, but what's hilarious is people that first year of bottles is coveted if you can get your hands on one uh, because uh, it was the funkiest. And at the next year, I went so sterile that I almost made it boring. And so the third year, we kind of went back to. But
0: I love that you didn't give up. I mean, you kept yeah. at it, even though she said, "I'm never going to do this again."
1: Well, she came up with a better process, <laughs> oh, a good. better way. You know, I mean, leave it to her. You know, ingenuity, uh, and uh, she she came up with the idea of these big immersion blenders we borrowed from the culinary school mm-hmm. in Cambrose. So now we just meet and then Im- and immersion blend and then pour it through a, a big um, colander. And uh, away we go. So it takes us about two hours, three hours, to process 8,000 pounds now. And we'll get 20 volunteers in here. But we didn't make it last year. Um, And people were really bummed that we didn't do it. We were like, well, we've done it, and we're kind of bored with it. Uh, But we took a break. And because we're in South Carolina, one of the big things we're known for is peaches. And People think Georgia is the peach state, but reality is South Carolina is the second largest peach producer behind California. So uh, Georgia is a way distant third, and people in South Carolina are very opinionated about which peaches are the best. There is a consensus sort of like the ridge peaches are very, uh, you know, kind of the favorites. So we talked a peach farmer into late season, single variety peaches. And there's a guy named Dave Wondrich who is a food his, or drinks historian. And Dave said, if you do peach brandy like you do everything else, you're gonna have the holy grail of the American spirit if you do that, because no one's doing it exactly right. They're using juice or they're using concentrate or something of that nature. And I said, well, we wanna just use peaches, peel, everything. And so we ended up getting uh, about 11,000 pounds of peaches. And um, we ended up... I got French oak barrels because I was like, I want to do toasted French oak. I want, I want to use something that's more European because that would have been what they would have been using, probably. There, I'm sure there were American Coopers at that point. But I felt, you know, we're, we're just dealing with a hypothesis here, you know. And so... Um, we threw the skins and everything in, and uh, the distillate came off, and it's very, very floral, super floral. But then you taste skin. Skin is really where the most flavor we figured out is. Um, and um, during that fermentation period, uh, when I was reading some papers from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson had, was experimenting. Like, all of them were with. Yeah, you know, they were all. You know, European, they wanted to be as good as the Europeans. And so uh, he was a huge Francophile, as you know. So they were making peach brandy there. And there's a part of that process when you're fermenting, you get this hard cider from the peaches, and that's called mobby. And so we got to drink some mobby back there, you know. So I felt like this is a historic moment. We're drinking mobby and we're making peach brandy. And Dave said the original mint julep was made with peach brandy, not bourbon and if you look at jerry thomas uh a lot of his cocktails were focused on peach Peach brandy and it was he's there was an old ad where it shows the prices Mm. of peach brandy and bourbon and rye and stuff peach brandy is the most expensive thing he's like it was the coveted it was the american cognac uh so he's like and if you will let that stuff sit for four to six years uh, you will have the Holy Grail. You will have the the thing of things that everyone will want to have some of. So when so, is that coming out? About three years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we 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 don't know. We tried some the other day, and it's pretty, you know, we have two barrels. And he said, hang on to at least one barrel. Uh, so what, we're going to go back at it again this year. We are going to make watermelon brandy again because we've got people that are, we're, we never, we don't, like, if, you go downstairs, you won't find any Agricole or watermelon or anything on the shelves because we sell out like very quickly of those things. But we only make, you know, three four hundred bottles a year. Uh, but it goes to New York, it goes to, you know, wherever, and and there's a secondary market for it a lot of times. Um, so Anne actually said that she's in New York right now and said that they have we made some apple brandy uh, about four years ago with some heirloom pippins. Uh, and she she had a bottle of it up there uh, yeah, in New that. York. So there's it's out, it's there, out there. But uh, we haven't had it for four years.
0: Uh, um, do you think that I can go downstairs and try some of it? What you have.
1: Probably not. We have some agricole, I think, down there behind the bar. Uh, there might be, there's some stuff over there that maybe, there may be some watermelon or something that Ann keeps, see, she, See where the important things are in her office. Uh, uh, she she keeps, and then we have a little library that we keep I'm sure. of uh, some stuff. And and I'm talking some of the good, bad, and ugly. We have some stuff that we've made that was not good uh, along the way, and you know uh, that's how you learn. Um, so what all this comes back to is sort of what I was saying about Wendell Berry. Uh, Ann loves to use this quote around. Uh, agri- you know, eating is an agricultural act, and she's, she likes to add to that and expand and say drinking is an agricultural act as well. And it's true when you think about wine or beer or spirits. It's either bad agriculture or good agriculture. It's just still agriculture. And if you think of it that way, it really is kind of exciting of what the possibilities are. Um, so we've been experimenting with other types of maize, I'm going to flip and start using the word maize because in the, in the world we're, we're, we're working with now, we're, we're, we went to Oaxaca and Mexico City in February with some geneticists um, and Glenn Roberts. And we went into Texcoco where there's a maize and wheat research center. A lot of people don't realize all maize came from Mesoamerica. It all started in the, with the Zapotecs and Mayans. Uh, and there are only 59 pure strains of corn in the world, period. And it all started there. And it, it, the the early the it all started with Teosinte, which is the precursor. So we learned a lot about Teosinte and, um, in these 59 varieties, um, we have made some whiskey with some of that as well. And I can tell you, it's very very different from variety to variety uh, of maize. So we're just sort of starting to scratch the surface. Do I think Jimmy Red's cool? Yeah, I love it. I think it's cool. We're very focused on it. We're making. We grew uh, 250,000 pounds of it last year. We're in. We just planted this last week. We're hoping to have somewhere around uh, half a million pounds this uh, this next fall. Um, seed security is a huge issue for us because it is an open pollinated uh, corn and promiscuous So Gosh,
0: I never would have even thought of that so um. we're
1: working in the background on that and that's also sort of why we wanted to go to Mexico and learn more about how it was cultivated and how they deal with it because they're working with the, those ancestral strains so I could nerd out on this all day um, but I know we have limited time same, same things applying to rye. We were making a, a rye uh, regionally. We did what a lot of people do. We used some corn in there. Well, that helps with the yield and the cost. And then eventually I said, you know, the corn's kind of messing it up. So we took the corn out. Then we were using malted and raw. I took the malted back in percentage, uh, more raw. And then eventually, I'm like, you know, I really like the flavor of the raw stuff. So now we just use 100% raw rye. And I'm like, let you know, I that you know, you get the, the idea here is we love highlighting the agriculture, and if you can taste that in a bottle, 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years from now, um, and it tells a story about that, about us, about this place, and about that grain we've done our job and that is what a craft distillery should do i think you know that's just my opinion is that's it is a it is you know small batch craft whatever Uh, ultimately we're uh we're hopefully honing and developing that craft uh along the way so um yeah
0: fabulous should be i want to go have some bourbon
1: should we go down there yeah
0: (laughs) thanks so much to Scott for letting me taste everything, except the peach brandy, which I will have to wait for like everyone else. Until then, I can make my cocktail of the week. Our cocktail of the week is the old favorite, the old-fashioned. Here's how Scott makes it. Stir two ounces of Jimmy Red Bourbon, 0.25 ounces of Demerara Simple Syrup, and five dashes of angostura bitters in a mixing glass, and then strain over a large ice cube. Then garnish with a lemon twist. Simple and delicious. You'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week at LushLifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. The non-alcoholic spirit market is getting more and more diverse, and we meet a man who has created a series of products that he says has all the spirit and none of the alcohol. Find out more next time. Anyone can buy a Lush Life t-shirt, no matter if you drink cocktails or not. There's now something for everyone at alushlifemanual.com merch. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life Podcast. For more information and links to everything you've heard, plus a whole lot more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. Theme music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your drinking partner, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.